Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 151st episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to share something really exciting. My second book, Dial Up the Dream, Make Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You, will be released May 1st, 2022. So what I'm going to do is that every week I'm going to release a little snippet from each chapter which will take us up to the book launch. Okay, so I'm going to start with why did I write this book? Well, a huge reason is that Dial Down the Drama gets you through the high school years, and then your teen leaves and goes to college and stumbles, not soars, into adulthood. So all the moms that I have worked with now talk to me about their issues about being a parent of an emerging young adult. So my book starts with junior or senior year and takes you through the mid-20s. Why the mid-20s? Because the brain isn't fully developed until 25. Now, I've been listening to moms for decades be confused at what is their role with their teen when they turn 18 and beyond. They're supposedly a legal adult. I mean, they are a legal adult. Parenting books have information up to around the teenage years, but there's not much out there to help moms navigate these emerging adults. There's so much ambiguity and confusion in these years. We feel that if we have been good mothers, then our teens should be perfect in college and beyond. So if your freshman freaks out and wants to come home or parties too much, gets a DUI, has an eating disorder, gets depressed, blows off her classes, then moms can feel like a failure when actually some of this behavior can be expected because the brain's still immature and is primed to make emotionally impulsive decisions and be driven by the reward system. That can drive your kids to go out and party, 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 and have unprotected sex. This book isn't meant to scare you, but to validate what you already know about your 18-year-old plus child because they're still immature. So in this book, I normalize what you are feeling and explain and help you discover what your role is. Part of the ambiguity is moms don't want to lose their relationships with their teens. And it's a huge loss and it can feel like a death when your teen leaves home. But what's true is that your relationship is changing and you can start to build a closer and more authentic relationship But here's the myth, is that that happens automatically. I mean, that's just not true. Like your teens don't have to talk to you anymore if they're not in the home. And we can drive our teens away because they don't want to be judged. So I give you practical steps on how to stay close to your teens. And lastly, Dial Up the Dream helps you reconnect with you and helps you dial up your dream. And ironically, this is what keeps you and your teen close. So here's a quote from my book. After nearly two decades together, the emotions and identities 
of mothers and daughters often become entangled like a drawer full of old necklaces. Through what you find in this book, you can free yourself and your daughter from those parts of your relationship that snag you and keep you stuck. You can move into this next stage in your mother-daughter relationship, having smoothed out the knots between you and shining side by side as two adults, each in your unique way. This emerging adult phase can be confusing, confounding, and even painful at times. But it is also an amazing time of personal growth for your daughter and for you. When you approach it with an understanding of what's happening and why, knowledge of how to manage it, and a fully open heart, this time of transition lays the foundation for her dreams and yours and for a relationship you both will cherish forever. All right, we're going to now jump back into our episode. Today, I have a conversation with Julie Bogart. She just recently published Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. Julie Bogart is the creator of the award-winning Innovative Brave Writer Program, teaching writing and language arts to thousands of families every year. She homeschooled her five now-grown children for 17 years is the founder of Brave Learner Home, which supports homeschooling parents through coaching and teaching. She has also taught as an adjunct professor of theology at Xavier University. Bogart is also the author of The Brave Learner. Julie helps us think about self-aware critical thinking. And as you know, everyone today feels like an expert. Our teens look to the internet for their answers, and they think they've found the truth. In Julie's book, Raising Critical Thinkers, she gives you tools to help your kids navigate the misinformation they find online and helps your teens identify a fact versus a fiction or outright lie. She helps us identify the difference between fact, interpretation, evidence, perspective, opinion, prejudice, bias, belief, story, worldview, and what role they play in critical thinking. I really, really, really enjoyed my conversation with Julie, and I know you will too. So welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me, Colleen. Yeah. A question that I ask all my speakers is, do you have kids? I do. I have five adult kids. And can you tell me their ages? Yes, I can. So my oldest is 34. He's married, has a daughter, my first grandchild, so he has favorite child points forever. Uh, And his (laughs) wife is expecting their second one just in three or four weeks, so that's exciting. Then I have a daughter named Johanna, and she is 32 and lives in Mexico and just got married and is expecting her first child, so that's exciting. And then I have a son who lives in Thailand. He is 30, and his name is Jacob. I have a son who is 28. Eight. I'm, I'm like going 27, <laughs> going on 28. He lives in Denver. And then I have a youngest daughter who is 25 and she lives in California. Love it. Well, your youngest and my daughter are the same age. Love it. That's great. <laughs> so you wrote a book called Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. So can you tell us the backstory and why you wrote the book? Yeah, I can. So I am 60 years old. So the internet came online a little more than halfway through my life, my late 30s. 
So I have a good memory for life before the internet. You know, we made friends as mothers at park days and La Leche League meetings and church and all these places that were very sort of in-person and friendly, right? We would sit together and watch our kids play soccer or go to gymnastics. And even if we had differences of opinion, people were usually pretty careful, like friendly. You didn't want to ruffle too many feathers. You held back strong opinions. And then the internet came along and I am a homeschooling parent. And so immediately home educators hopped on. I always say the internet opened and we were the first ones through the doors because we were lonely. We were all by ourselves around the country looking for support. So we got on these discussion boards and these mothers and mostly mothers back then. So it was mothers, most of us white, most of us heterosexual, most of us of a similar religious and political background got on these boards and I fully expected it to be like kumbaya, we're all going to get along. And we ended up in bloodbaths over things like cloth and paper diapers, whether or not to use formula. Uh, is it okay to let your child cry to sleep? And then we even got in bigger fights over things like who you're voting for or whether or not you shared the same theological perspective. And it struck me even in the very early stages that despite the fun, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of being online and in conversation, there was this undercurrent of belief that we would all agree. And mm -hmm. when someone didn't agree, it felt surprising and upsetting. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, you don't agree, let's discuss. It was more like, how wild that you would not agree with my obviously clear presentation of the facts and the truth. And yes. that, that really sent me on a journey over the last two and a half decades. Um, not only was I raising my own kids and ending up with teenagers and young adults, but I went on my own odyssey of evaluating many of the beliefs I had just taken for granted. And between that and being online and watching the algorithms change and social media come on the scene, it just seemed like we hit a crisis where we don't really understand what it is to think critically. We're just quick to defend what we think we know. I couldn't agree more, yes. How do you define critical thinking and can you explain what self-aware critical thinking is? Yes, I absolutely can give you a definition. This comes from my book. For me, being a critical thinker means that you have the ability to evaluate evidence, but then also to notice bias as it kicks into gear to consider a variety of perspectives, even if they make you uncomfortable. And then you render a possible verdict, what you believe to be true for this moment. In other words, critical thinking in my mind is not so much about figuring out what's wrong with the other guy's perspective, you know, drilling holes in their perspective or beliefs. It's being aware of how my own reactivity is being activated and then in that context, grappling with this new unfamiliar information, allowing it to sit with me for a period of time while I consider its implications, my relationship to it, the relationship of the other person to that information, so that I'm getting a much more well-rounded view and I'm not just jumping in with a knee-jerk reaction. It seems like reactivity is at an all-time high. Would you agree with that? Yes. I definitely agree with that. It's harder and harder for people to actually listen to each other. I really think we've been trained into it though. And so I give a lot of grace and compassion to our fellow humans 
what we have today is the results of about 150 years of traditional schooling. And schooling is designed to move students through a certain package of information, to test them on it, to make sure they've mastered it, and then to be passed to the next level. There is usually a curricula, a teacher, a school board, a textbook that has the right answers. And children are treated as though they are empty receptacles to receive right information. And then we're tested on it. So what happens is under time pressure, with the awareness that there is one right answer for all, and if I get it, I'm rewarded, and if I don't get it, I'm punished, by the time we hit social media, we are primed for this idea that if I put forth my answer with the authority I've selected, it will be inviolable. No one will be able to say anything about it because we've all agreed there's always a right answer and there's always authorities who can back it up. What we didn't account for <laughs> is that by the time we got into this social space, not the school space, that people have a collection of authorities. They're not coming from a unified understanding of what the right answer is, the way we are in a classroom. And then add to it the algorithms with their like buttons, small comment spaces, and the scrolling mechanism that puts you in a time pressure mindset. We just kick back into our school pressure experience and we volunteer an opinion and we believe it will be accepted. And of course, we're finding out that it wasn't. We've got 20 years now of trolling to prove it. That is so wise. Wow. So how can parents balance wanting to prepare their kids to think critically and that natural desire to want their children to think like they do? Oh my gosh, yes. From the time our babies are born, we move into what I call the parental indoctrination program. And this indoctrination is not just politics and religion. It's things like invisible germs, right? Like you have a five-year-old and you say, wash your hands, it's time for dinner. And your five-year-old says, I hate washing my hands, I don't like the water. And then what do we say? Do we say, oh, tell me more about that. What about the water and how does it feel? Is it cold, is it hot? Is it too wet? You know, like instead of being curious, we immediately say, there are these invisible microbes on your skin called germs. You can't see them, but if they mix with your food and go in your body, they make you sick and, right? We just, we go into indoctrination. And our poor little kids, you're the authority. They're hearing you cite other authorities. They don't even have data, research, experience, evidence to verify what you're saying. They just have to accept it. So at a very young age, parents are used to sort of scripting what reality is for their kids. And so kids grow up with this belief that there is someone wiser, older, bigger, more authoritative, who has the answers they need. So for parents to sort of flip the script on this habit, what I recommend is asking questions and actually being fascinated rather than looking for agreement. So when your child says, you know, I don't want to tie my shoes, instead of going into the indoctrination program, all shoes have to be tied. It's important for you to wear shoes. We can't go to Target if you're not in shoes. We start with, what is it about tying shoes that's bothering you? Can we talk more about tying? Can we, can we think of alternatives? I had a daughter who hated tying shoes and finally I just gave in. She wore Hannah Anderson clogs till she was like 12. And then one day <laughs> at a friend's house, she learned how to tie shoes. There's a certain um, inability we have to allow our kids to collect their own data. 
So like with the hand washing experience, and I know you can't do this for everything. We've got to go to Target. We've got to get out of the house. We've got to do math homework. Sometimes a kid just needs to wash their darn hands. But once in a while, you could turn this into an actual critical thinking experience. So let's go to the faucet. I'm going to bring a thermometer. Let's test the temperature of the water and you tell me which one feels the least annoying. The child says, oh, that one's too cold. That one's too hot. That one is okay, but I still don't like it. Oh, so maybe it's the wetness. How else can we get your hands clean? Well, I have wipes. I have hand sanitizer. Should we test those? See which one of those works? If the child still doesn't believe their hands are dirty, could you just take the risk of letting them eat dinner and finding out if they get sick? Like we get so bent out of shape over this belief system we're trying to voice on our children instead of doing the data collection, the research, the conversation, the taking them seriously that helps them learn to form the foundation for asking good questions. Do you have an example for teens with moms I do. and teens? Okay. Absolutely. Um, oh yeah, teenagers for sure. One of the things we do with teenagers all the time is we want them to think the way we do, vote the way we do, have our values. Because we've spent now 35, 40 years building these values, right? So we feel like, hey, listen to me, I'm a shortcut, <laughs> right? I'll save you all those painful steps, all the things I did that I regret. But what happens with teenagers is at about age 14, they encounter a world that's different than their family in a much more meaningful way. They suddenly are like, oh, there are other ways to live in the world that makes sense to these other people that are different than my families. And now I think that sounds more interesting. And then we get all threatened and worried. So what I recommend now is if you have a teen who comes to you and they are really countering you, like I think I should play violent video games, you know, all day. One of the things that you can say is tell me more. Just tell me more about that. What is it about these games that attracts you? You want to play all day. Are you saying you want to play all day and all night? Like, do you mean 12 hours or 24 hours? What if your kid as a smart aleck and comes back and says 24 hours? Well, what I might recommend is, well, that sounds amazing. I wonder if you could last 24 hours. In fact, <laughs> if you're going to do 24 hours, I want you in that seat. Like, what are you going to do about peeing and eating? Do you need me to make snacks? Should we set an alarm to wake you up? You know, how do we clear your siblings off so we can do this experiment? And in fact, um, one of the things that occurred to me when I have these 24-hour ideas, what if you even looked back on your own life? Like I did a dance marathon for 24 hours in college. I raised money for a good cause. Could you say to your 24 hour video gaming child, I'm putting money on you. If you make it, it's gonna go to the charity of your interest, right? And so you flipped it completely. You've said, I'm gonna take you seriously. We're gonna experiment and experience. We're gonna talk about why this is important to you. And I'm going to add to it my own thoughts my own experiences. We're so quick to short-circuiting that experience or that sort of question, that fantasy, instead of allowing it to unfold a little bit. Yes, the power of curiosity. Truly, truly. And, you know, we want to welcome it. I remember my 15-year-old son came to me and just for sort of a sidebar, today he's a human rights lawyer in Bangkok. And I'm telling you that because the trajectory was set early. 
So I remember when he was 15, he started watching these videos online that were all conspiracy theories. Like any adult knew this is a conspiracy theory, but he was fascinated. It was the first time he had considered that the construction of our government wasn't the only way to think about world governing or leadership or how various people groups were treated. And so he was drawn in completely. And his dad, my husband at the time, was like, oh no, we gotta tell him, it's a lie, it's a conspiracy. And I said, no, John, this is evidence of his mind developing for the first time. He's bringing a critical lens to what he has always assumed was natural and true. So I just watched the movie with him, asked him questions. We did some looking online to corroborate or discredit. And I really wasn't looking to discredit. I was looking more to allow him to unfold to me what about this attracted him? And you know what we got to? He cared a lot about how people were being treated. And it was the first time he realized that structures like government actually impact how certain populations experience life in America. And really, this is goes all the way back. The next thing you know, he gets involved with Amnesty International. He goes off to college and gets involved with the mock UN. And the next thing you know, he's at Columbia Law School studying to be a human rights lawyer. Like, I could have just short-circuited it. We could have just yeah. said, that's complete bunk. Don't watch that. You're not allowed to watch that, right? But to actually enter in and get at the underlying impulse that's driving their curiosity is how we start to build critical thinkers. Oh, I love that. So in one section, you call it fab vocal, and you talk about 10 terms like fact, interpretation, evidence, perspective, opinion, prejudice, bias, belief, story, worldview. So can you define some of those and how does knowing that help you with critical thinking? Yeah, so this is my fab vocab. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, oh just, yeah, uh, okay, yeah. that was a uh, typo. <laughs> is there an L in there, really? No, me. Oh, I, I'm I, you. Oh. My, that is my typo. All right, Not a good. problem, good. Uh, yeah, not a problem at all. So yes, for instance, we won't go over all 10, but I'll go over the one that is the most commonly misused in my opinion in my opinion. Um, and it's the word opinion. Uh, we use it all the time. We say, this is my opinion. So therefore you cannot discuss this any further with me because I have a right to what? My opinion. But in most circumstances, people are not expressing opinions. They're expecting either a bias or a viewpoint or a perspective. And the reason that I want to make this differentiation is that an opinion can only truly be formed after you have proper education and experience and have read widely in a field. Like if we think of a Supreme Court opinion, we're talking about something that has been thoroughly vetted with some understanding of all the issues at play. Most of us, when we say we have an opinion, it's an off the cuff belief or bias or perspective. Like, you know, this kind of cheddar cheese is the best. That's not really an opinion. That's just a personal preference, right? And yes. then we get defensive. Oh, no, that's an opinion. You can't contradict me. Yes. Opinions, then, if I had any control, would be reserved for those things where we have subject area jurisdiction. Like, I can speak with some authority now about education and rearing children and homeschooling because I've invested 30 years of my life. 
but do not ask me to have an actual opinion about climate change. I can read all the arguments. I can actually like some better than others, but I am not qualified to vet the actual work that these scientists and the anti, um, the ones who do not believe in climate change, I can't vet their work. I can't go in and actually evaluate how they did their measuring, what their research and data tells them. Now, I can have a preference. I can even say, well, this one was pretty persuasive. I, we could actually say I am more persuaded about this perspective rather than saying it's my opinion because at yes. least it recognizes there's a source of authority you're appealing to. And that is different than just, well, I'm the authority and I'm the one who knows, right? Yes. No, I think it was really good. You kind of teased all that stuff out. So can you go more into like, like perspective bias and worldview? Because I, I think all of that, it's really confusing to people. It is. So bias is really just the skin you live in. It's unavoidable, like you can hardly even realize that you have one. But here's the key question you can ask to identify your bias before you start reading or listening to a news show or talking to a friend. Ask yourself, what do I hope will be true? So you go into reading this editorial and you know that it's about, let's say, the military buildup over right now at Ukraine. You sit down to read this article, you see the name of the author, you know who that is. Ask yourself, what do I hope will be true? Because you will immediately surface how you are bringing your own agenda to the reading. And we all have one. And there's no reason to not notice it. You can openly acknowledge it. You can pay attention to what's happening in your body while you're reading. This is what happens to me. I'll be reading an article, I'll go in thinking, I want to prove this guy wrong because I don't like this writer and somebody linked to it on Facebook and I want to see that this guy is all off base. So what do I do? I go on like a treasure hunt for facts I can discredit and the one aspect of this article that I can bring out to prove I'm right. That yeah. is not actually a fair reading. That's just a biased reading on my part. Yes. Conversely, if I have a really strong perspective based on my personal experience and all of the details that I have absorbed to this point, I would say that'd be more like a tentative opinion. So I might say that I'm biased towards home education. So I have a perspective that it ought to be legal in the United States, right? That's the conclusion I've drawn from my bias and the research I've done. But what happens when someone makes a logical argument that contradicts me? If I call it an opinion, I tend to get very married to it. But if it's a perspective, I can actually pause to hear additional information mm. and allow it to modify and shape what I know. So let me give you an example with homeschooling, because I think even if you don't have homeschoolers in your audience, you'll appreciate this. So I was on an email chat board way back when, like 20 years ago, and I was advocating for homeschooling in a very hostile environment. And so I was standing on liberty and justice for all, right? Like the pursuit of happiness and parents have the right to raise their children the way they want to. And this one woman from France was in this chat. So I was using democracy as my big model for why homeschooling should be legal. And she came back and she said, but that's not what democracy is. Democracy is that everyone has access to the same education. 
What you're talking about actually means some kids will have a better education than others. And instead of collectively putting your energy into ensuring everyone is well-educated, you're allowing for some kids to be privileged and have better educations. That's not democracy. Well, I've lived in France. I speak French. And I suddenly remembered that in France, like if you live in Marseille and in the middle of the year move to Paris, your kids will be in the same textbook. Like they are really committed to a fair experience of education. Now, I'm not saying there aren't corrupt officials who go to private schools, blah, blah, blah. But as a theory, as a model, that's their model. And it broke in through to me like I had not accounted for the fact that democracy is interpreted mm. by culture. Mm. And that was the breakthrough insight I had. It didn't really modify my view on homeschooling, but it did modify how I started thinking about democracy, which shifted how I thought about a lot of things. So when we actually come in with a bias and we're aware of it, we offer a perspective and someone gives us their perspective, what we're having the opportunity to do is see what's at stake in the conversation. We're not simply propagandizing everyone. We're like, oh, the educational motive of making sure people learn is the goal of both homeschooling and the view of this French woman. And we're coming from two different ways to get there. How can I expand to include both agendas? That's what became interesting to me. Ah, so interesting, yes. So can you talk about silent films? And I love the story of the Eastern Germany. Oh, I would love to tell that story. So in 1983, I was 21 years old and I was traveling with a friend. And back then the Soviet Union, USSR, Russia, for those of you who are very young, uh, <laughs> controlled Eastern Europe. It was a big communist block of countries and Germany was divided into East and West. And so Berlin, which was the capital of Germany before it divided, decided to divide itself in half. So half of it was East Berlin, half was West Berlin. And you could travel from West Germany to West Berlin if you took a train at night. They literally blocked the windows so you could not see East Germany as you were rolling through it to get to Berlin, to West Berlin. So my friend and I hopped on the train, it's dark, we can't see East Germany, we're heading to West Berlin. We get out at six in the morning, it's hot, it's sunny. I remember we went to McDonald's and they were serving beer. I'm like, wow, this is an amazing city. You know, we're young, we're having fun. Yeah. And, uh, and so Craig, my friend was like, it's such a great day. Why don't we go to East Berlin today? And then, you know, we'll spend the remainder of our time in West Berlin. And I was like, great idea. So we get out our passports and we go to Checkpoint Charlie, the infamous gate between East and West. And it's this canvas tunnel that you walk through that, you know, they look at your passport, they do all, it's really nerve wracking. It was really nerve wracking because you wonder, will I get back out? You know, all the evil empire rhetoric, right? That I had heard my entire life from Ronald Reagan and my dad and everybody else, Star Wars. So we go through the tunnel and it had been sunny and hot in West Berlin. I popped through the tunnel and it was sunny. And my body and my mind were like, wait, this is East Berlin. Shouldn't it be a gray sky? Like, I know that's completely irrational, but in my own brain, because of all that rhetoric, I had actually built a silent film that East Germany would be ugly, that it would be gray, that the weather would never be sunny, and that people would be miserable. 
And I didn't go into the full story, but while I was there, you know, I was shocked to meet East Germans who were friendly. I was amazed that the buildings were pretty. The architecture had some scars from World War II, but it looked very much like West Germany in some parts. And it was sort of this like awareness that I was allowing my mind to be controlled by rhetoric more than by direct experience. And eventually I did have the chance to meet uh, a family 20 years later, 30 years later in um, Slovakia after communism had fallen. And this young woman's parents were my age and I asked her if they missed communism, expecting her to say, not at all. And she told me they did. And that was a problem mm. for my poor brain that was convinced that everybody must have hated it. And even though she would agree that there were abuses of the government, under this new system, they didn't have security of job, retirement, or a home, and they missed those things. Mm. And it was, again, one of those moments where I realized I had allowed a silent film to develop in my imagination that made all communist countries and all communist people who lived under communism have the same worldview as me about it. It doesn't mean that I was approving of communism as a form of government. It meant that I needed to expand to include these personal experiences, the fact that the world was still spinning on its axis for them, that they were human beings just like me. Those were some of the feelings I had when I went through those changes. Well, when I read that story, I was like, oh my gosh, I had that same silent film. Like it was like all gray when I think of, yes, that was the film in my head, which makes me think, why do I think that? Yes. And you know what? I love that you say that because one of the first readers of my early draft was younger than me and she did not get it. And I was like, yeah, but if you were raised with this rhetoric, it reminds me of growing up in Los Angeles and I heard about Central Park in New York as being a place people got raped. That's what I thought <laughs> Central Park was. The first time I saw it, I was 40 years old in person. I'm like, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I just pictured it being like, you know, scary, dark corners, like just right. things to avoid. And I kept thinking, why do people keep running through Central Park? They're going to get raped, right? <laughs> like, I think, you know, we undervalue how much our imagination plays a role in our thinking. And so we don't realize we're being controlled by these silent images that we've allowed to grow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's why I wanted you to tell the story. I was like, awesome. oh, my gosh, me too. Amazing. <laughs> so one of your chapters, you say critical thinking starts with caring. And you say caring to matter, caring to think well, caring about accuracy, caring about credibility. So can you explain why, what you mean by some of this caring? Yeah. So when we talk about caring, there are a couple of layers to it. There's certainly people will say, we well, should care that you have an accurate source. You should care that the information you're passing on is true. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think when we talk about caring, what I'm really saying is caring about thinking, not just about the issue, like caring that you have enough data before you start asserting yourself. Too often, we feel called on because of the thumbs up, thumbs down on Facebook or the feeling that you're being pressured by your relatives at Thanksgiving or something. We feel called on to take a position when we don't even really need to yet. 
Like it would mm-hmm. really be interesting to just say, you know, I haven't thought deeply enough about that idea to have a position. Wouldn't that be an amazing comment to make to someone yeah. in your life? And so caring, I think, starts with realizing that you have a certain um, a certain process you work through when you want to think well. We don't have to think well about everything. Like I get to just like Starbucks coffee. I do not care that you have all these reasons I should hate it. I just happen (laughs) to like it. And I'm willing to not think well about that. But if we're going to talk about something that for me is personally meaningful, then I really want to do my due diligence. I'll give you an example from my own life without identifying which side of the issue I was on. But there's a social issue that's highly contentious in America, abortion. And I was on one side of that debate and active in my activism. And I remember I was leading this life believing that we had the moral position and the other side knew their position wasn't moral. They were just opposing it out of selfish reasons. So this was the rhetoric, the way I had heard it. And I was on a blog series and this is when the internet was still new. So I was being exposed to a lot of people that had opinions very different than mine. And I read someone who said that they had the moral position in abortion and that the other side was being selfish and did not realize. And I was like, wait, no, 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 no. You're the immoral ones. We're the moral ones. It was such a shock to me. And so then I thought, well, who's been telling me about the other side of this issue? And I realized it was all the people I agreed with. And so I took myself to the library and I said, you know what, I'm going to check out Um, books and articles from people who hold the opposite position and let them speak for themselves. And one of the first things I discovered very early on, and I went on this journey for over two years, like I didn't make a decision three weeks later. But what I discovered in that journey was that we weren't even talking about the same issue. The two sides are not talking about the same things. What's at stake, what they value, what they think is the moral center of the issue, they're not the same. And once I saw that, I was like, wow, not only are we far apart, but we're nowhere near resolving it because we just keep thinking conversion is the only solution. And what I'm asking for when I talk about critical thinking is how can we actually hear what's at stake for people we don't agree with And how can our solutions also include them? Yes. I also liked your story about um, your history teacher. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. I was already in my 40s. So I just want you to know these skills have been coming (laughs) over a lifetime. Yeah. So I was getting my master's at Xavier University, and I took a class that was on the civil rights movement. And my professor, who's a Black American, opened on the first day of class, and he said, let me tell you a story about the history of the United States. It began like this. A bunch of noble people who were religiously persecuted, you know, came across the ocean. Columbus, you know, and then he talked about the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, like all the things I had ever heard. I was like nodding along. Yeah, that is the story of America. And then he paused and he said, I was in second grade sitting in that classroom whose story was not being told. And within a moment's time, I realized, oh my gosh, that's true. Adam's ancestors did not come from Holland or England or Portugal or Spain. And then he said, 
my people came over on completely different boats. The Amistad, slave ships, they were stolen from their homes. He says, the next leg of that story is that everyone who came to America found this empty wilderness and they civilized it and turned it into this amazing country. And he's like, but that's not true. For Native Americans in these classrooms, their families were here before any of ours. And it wasn't a new world, it was the old world. He said, when we study history or anything for that matter, the question we wanna ask is who's telling the story? Yeah. Whose story is not being told? Yeah. Whose story is being told incorrectly? And yeah. for me, that was such a huge pivot moment. And to be fair, I had been a history major in college from UCLA. And perhaps I had a professor who said something like this. I don't remember that. But it took some life experience to recognize, wow, I am living under the tyranny of a specific point of view. And I haven't interrogated it yet. That was sort of a beginning moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. That was a powerful example. So how do we help our kids navigate the misinformation they find online? And how can they identify a fact versus a fiction or outright lie? Love that question. So a very practical tool that we can teach our kids, I took from Joel Best. He's a sociologist who writes a lot about how statistics can mislead us. His quote that I um, used in my book that's my favorite is that a bad stat is harder to kill than a vampire. <laughs> I just think that's so accurate. Um, you know, especially now in the time of images, right, where we can create graphs and memes and make statistics mean things by a visual that they don't even mean if you actually evaluated them. But he offers us two guidelines that I think are helpful for kids. The first one is when you're dealing with facts or statistics, figure out what the measurement method is. Um, I tell a story in the book of how I was noticing that Naomi Osaka was being acknowledged for her fastest tennis serve ever. And I went and told my boyfriend, who's a huge sports fan, um, Naomi Osaka hit a tennis serve 193 miles an hour. And he looked at me and he's like, Julie, that can't be right. I'm like, no, I read it. I saw it on Instagram. And he's like, Julie, a serve that fast would injure you. There's no way. And I'm like, <laughs> I know it's true, Jim. I know it's true because I saw it. I read it. It was right there on the screen. And he's like, okay, <laughs> let's just think about this. The fastest serve a man has ever served is less than 160 miles an hour. And I was like, oh, gosh, you seem to know something I don't know. But the image was blazoned in my brain. So I said, let me pull out my phone. And while I'm pulling it out, he says, what tennis tournament was this from? And I said, the Australian Open. And he immediately said, oh, could it be in kilometers per hour? And I suddenly <laughs> realized I had not bothered first to figure out the tool of measurement. Like, did I have the right scale of measurement, right? If somebody says 100 million, what is 100 million? Is it even possible that it could be 100 million? 100 million what? Are we talking centimeters? Are we talking dollars? Are we talking humans? Like find out how we're measuring. And then the second is what are the benchmarks in that field? So my boyfriend knew the highest speed serve of a man. So he immediately was able to find out that I was passing along misinformation. 
<laughs> because there's no way a woman is serving 40 miles an hour faster than a man, you know, in this tournament. And so, of course, we scrolled through and sure enough, it said KPH. But I have a bias toward imperial measurement. So I did not even look at the K. I just assumed it was miles per hour. And because I didn't know the benchmarks or the measurement tool, I read it wrong. And that's how it happens. That's how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So the second section of your book, you talk about reading, experience, and encounter. So what are the challenges or benefits of each of them? Yeah. So reading is what we usually associate with being well-educated. And I love reading. Huge fan. But I like to warn people that reading is also incredibly safe. You can choose to read only the people you agree with. You can read something you disagree with and just distrust it and not be moved to think about anything differently. You read safely. So you might be sitting in your very cozy home reading about the Holocaust and you are not at risk in any way. What happens with reading a lot of times is we feel filled with information and then smugly well-educated and then we make pronouncements without adequate experience or education to back up our view. And a lot of times reading does supply data that you can't get any other way, but short of experience and encounter, the other two aspects of learning that I advocate, you can't have a complete understanding. The example I use in the book is, imagine only reading about the violin. You could know countless things about violin, but if you've never heard one played, that is an incomplete understanding of violin, no matter how much you've read. And when we listen to violin, we are having an experience, but it might just be the symphony one day and bluegrass the next day, it, it does impact us. But the next level of learning is what I call encounter, where you are a little bit out of control. And in this case, it would be someone putting that violin in your arms, where you now have to make a squeaky scratchy sound with your bow suddenly you are quite aware that there is so much you don't know. Encounter puts us in touch with the power differential. So when, let's say, a person like me, non-military person, makes some pronouncement about how the military can't be trusted to a person who's in the military, like, that's not a good move. I can give you all my reasons based on all these things I've read. But if I'm not a person with experience who's gone through the encounter of dealing and grappling with war, how much can I really say meaningfully? I can ask good questions, perhaps. I can bring my civilian perspective with me, but it's reading experiences and then capped off with encounters. That's when you can actually form an opinion, a meaningful one. Yeah. Yeah. And in your, your chapter around encounters, that's going to bring up a lot of feelings and reactions, right? Totally. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was in college, I was studying the history of Islam and Arabic, and I was learning all about the North Africa region. Then I went and visited Morocco for a summer, which was really pleasurable, but very different than reading about it. And then I moved to Morocco for four years, and suddenly it was a whole other world for me, like hard, not always enjoyable, I discovered things that I thought I had opinions about, got completely overturned by that experience. I'll never forget when I first got there, 
you know, I came with this background in language and education, and I felt very young and smart. And the landlady of my apartment came downstairs one day and she said, uh, Julie, let's make some bread. And I said, I've never made bread. And she goes, what do you mean you've never made bread? Do you not have an education? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, two very different meanings of this word, right? And she's like, okay, I am going to have to educate you. So she taught me how to make bread, how to make tea, how to cut open, uh, you know, we'd go and get a live chicken, they'd wring its neck, we'd have to defeather it. Like, I got an education. It was one of those moments where I was like, oh, your culture helps you decide what to esteem, what skills yeah. are valuable, right? So that's what we mean by encounter. It's where your skills are less important and you are being confronted with a way of knowing that you don't currently have and that you have to adapt to. Yeah. So you have a lot of exercises like at the end of your chapters. So what is your favorite exercise for teens? I love the exercise of using the teaching of grammar as a way to think critically. And so my favorite thing that I did with my teens is we use the poem Jabberwocky. This is in the Keen Observation chapter, and it is an exercise in textual interpretation. Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, has written this amazing poem called Jabberwocky that has so much invented language. You don't actually know what the storyline is, except that you totally do. And so you read the whole thing and by the end, you feel like you know the story. But if you actually go through and look at the language, you're like, I don't know what a vorpal sword is. I don't know what a slithy tove is. I don't know what gyre and jimble in the wave means. And so what I did with my teens is we sat down and we just started deconstructing the language. Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and jimble in the wave. And I immediately started with the word brillig. So what is brillig? you hear that word, what clues do you have that make you think it has a certain meaning? And interestingly, like one of my kids immediately heard twas and thought of twas the night before Christmas. So they thought, well, brillig must mean night, twas night. But then I had another child who was like, to me, it sounds like bright. So I think it means it was like a, a it was bright, twas bright. And I was like, well, so now one of those is a noun, one of those is an adjective, that's interesting. We've already got two different interpretations starting in this story. Let's go on to the next words. And we did that for the entire poem. And at the end of it, they had their own definitions, their own storyline, and then we wrote another stanza continuing the story with their own definitions. Now, here's why I love this exercise so much. We don't actually recognize how many times we bring our own feelings and definitions to English. When we're reading an article, the way a word will evoke a whole string of thoughts that take us in a direction. And textual interpretation relies on that critical thinking to ask, but what does this word actually mean? What did it mean when the person said it? What does it mean today? What do I think it means for me personally? What would it mean for my mother or my school teacher? So that we really start understanding that critical thinking is about identifying nuance. It's not yes, just getting yes. it right. Yes, now that's awesome. So you talk about rhetorical imagination. And so what role does that play in critical thinking? 
The rhetorical imagination for me is a way of reminding people that the imagination is a part of good arguments, research, and academic writing even. When we talk about rhetoric, we're talking about specific language that helps us convey our ideas, and we do it in a persuasive or deeply um, educated manner. But to write well, to think well, requires creativity. It means being able to imagine yourself into a variety of contexts, to imagine solutions, to not limit yourself to only one way of thinking. And so when we invite students into this context of academic life, whether it's university level or high school level or even junior high, we're asking them to keep the same attitude they had at age five. Instead of dress up clothes, they're going to dress up in the personas of the people they're reading. They're going to actually pretend to agree with an argument so they can understand the argument. It's almost like being an actor in a play. You're gonna put on this role, you're gonna get into character, you're gonna feel the motivations that animate this dialogue. That's what I want from teens. I want them to go into reading, let's say an argument against the thing they stand for, and I want them just to pretend that it makes sense. Pretend that this person is logical. Pretend that this argument won and what implications would it have? That's how we grow our minds and that's literally how we think critically. I love it. So what is your best piece of advice for the moms who are listening? I think the main thing I wanna say to parents and I, I conclude the book this way is that Community identity is partly responsible for why we are so attached to our positions. We feel like we're gonna get kicked out of our religious groups, our political groups, our friend groups, our, you know, the golf league, if we admit who we voted for because everyone else voted for someone else. Like that's the world we live in, our loyalties to our communities. And so kids grow up with their primary community being their family and they need to know that your family is safe for dissent. They need to know that when they don't tow the family line, they are still welcome here. They will not be shamed, humiliated, mistreated, called names, or even subtly mistreated, like ignoring them or rolling the eyes or saying, we don't wanna talk about that topic with you because you have crazy ideas. You're only 16, wait till you're 45. That all needs to go away. Instead, what I would love to see is more parents celebrating when their kids say something that really goes against their grain, because that shows the beginning of a mind at play, starting to imagine that there are ways to think that weren't just passed down as propaganda. They will not stay in the views they have at 15. I mean, if you're 30, 35, 45, don't you know that? Do you still have all the views you held, same as your parents? Do you have them from 15? You do not. So your children need a champion, someone who allows them the freedom to explore ideas and to even overstate them, which we all do when we're 15. <laughs> Just knowing that this is like dress up clothes. They're not really Robin Hood. They're not really Cinderella, right? It's the same. Good advice. So I'm assuming that people can get your book at everywhere books are sold or right. Yep. That's right. And if you want a free downloadable book club companion guide, you can go to the book website, 
raisingcriticalthinkers.com. Sometimes these ideas are easier to digest in community. So we created a free guide to help you facilitate a book discussion with friends. That's awesome. And so can they contact you also at there? Yes. Um, if you want to reach out to me, follow me on Instagram. Julie Brave Writer is my account. Julie Brave Writer. Brave Writer is my writing company. But you can also reach out to me through email, julie at bravewriter.com. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Thank you for having me, Colleen. It's a great conversation. Yes. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.